Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the land where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to thank everyone for all of your lovely messages of support online as we celebrated 10 years of Garden of Yoga in Melbourne recently, and the people who came along in person, including some of our past podcast guests. It was such a beautiful afternoon and we really appreciate all of you. Our guest today is Cyril Kaye, I hope I said that right, who is an occupational therapist and aerial yoga teacher who lives in Switzerland. We connected with her via the Making Aerial Yoga More Accessible Facebook group. Our Joe created this group to help aerial yoga practitioners who are focusing on the more accessible and therapeutic aspects of this practice share inspiration, insights and questions. We were really inspired by a post Cyril shared about a course she created for people who have traumatic brain injury and we were excited to learn more. Cyril shares about the varied effects of a traumatic brain injury and how a lot of the work is around supporting people navigate life in a new way. We also talk about the emotional impacts of these types of life-changing injuries and how there's often a process of grieving which also extends to friends and family. Cyril and the team she works with are very dedicated to this physically and emotionally demanding job, and she initially turned to aerial yoga for her own well-being. This led to the installation of aerial yoga hammocks at the rehabilitation centre she works at, and eventually to her creating a specialised course of aerial yoga for people who have a traumatic brain injury. Alright, let's get into our conversation. All right, Cyril, could you please start by just telling us a bit about your background and how you discovered aerial yoga? Well, my name is Cyril. I'm 37 years old now and I live in Switzerland in a small town near the capital. And I'm an occupational therapist. I've been working now 10 years in a rehab center for adults with brain injuries. And I discovered aerial yoga five or six years ago. I can't remember really well. When I think back on the path that led me to it, I believe that the premises were already there when I was very, very young. When I was little, I dreamed of working in a circus as a trapeze artist. Oh, wow. <laughs> or, um, the one who does acrobatic things on horseback. I don't really know what the name is for it again. And then my passion for horses led me to equestrian walking, uh, vaulting, which I practiced in competition for more than 10 years. And when I decided to stop this sport for various reasons, I started looking for something softer and more mindful. And I first looked into traditional yoga, but not very convincingly. Um, maybe I didn't meet the right people at the right time. I don't know. But fortunately, then I came across some images of aerial yoga. Don't ask me how. I can't remember how. <laughs> and it just clicked for me. So it was something gentle, but challenging at the same time. And it reminded me of my initial interest in circus and acrobatics. About the circus and acrobatic aspect, I know we'll talk about this later. There's a lot to say. <laughs> but well, I guess that's what led me to there. Uh -huh. And I quickly looked for a studio that offered this type of class in my city. I signed up and fell in love with the practice immediately. I've never given up since. <laughs> 
oh, that's so nice. And you get to live your childhood dream in a different way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of. And so would you mm-hmm. mind sharing a little bit about the type of work you do as an occupational therapist? Well, the world of occupational therapy is very broad. <laughs> it would take a very, very long time to define the profession in a comprehensive way. I guess my job is to try to give the person back as much autonomy as possible to carry out the activities and roles that are important and meaningful to them in their daily lives. And we try to achieve this by either retraining the activities in order to carry them out as they were before, or by finding other ways to do it, of doing so, whether it be by adapting the environment, finding strategies, proposing and using special tools or equipments. And well, like I said, the field of action is vast. It often starts with personal care, like relearning to wash, to dress, and then expands to cooking, shopping, cleaning, taking public transport, managing weekly appointments, carrying out leisure activities, and so forth. And as long as it's important to the person, as long as it makes sense to them, we can potentially get involved to see how we can help. And so in our rehabilitation center, we work in very close collaboration with neuropsychologists, physiotherapists, psychomotor therapists, and of course, the nursing team. And our skills sometimes overlap and we help each other to get to the person, to their goal. And the patient is really, really at the center of, of it all, I guess. I would just like to mention that I try not to mix my job as an occupational therapist and the aerial yoga course that I give. That's two separate things. I do that separately. But I think we'll get to talk about this later, but I introduced the hammock and some way to use it to our psychomotor therapists. And she sometimes uses it also, but with her own background. So if needed, I can come and help, for instance. But I really try to separate both practices. And so is that because it's just a different scope of practice? So you kind of go into a different headspace or just kind of for practicality reasons, like you need different tools when you're doing different tasks? I think my job as an occupational therapist is very different because I I focus on daily activities, you know, and aerial yoga is just something else. In my spare time, I love to do aerial yoga, but it's not my work, uh, my main work, my main job. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And you've mentioned that you do work with people who have traumatic brain injury. I know that can also take a lot of different forms and a lot of different levels of severity. Would you like to talk about some of the issues that your clients are dealing with as a result of their own injuries? Mm-hmm. Well, just before I start, I would like to mention how the people get to us in our center. Oh, yeah, good idea. Okay with that. Well, there are several ways in which people come to us. And most of the time, they refer to us following their accurate uh, hospitalizations and to continue their progression before returning home, when it's still possible. It's not always the case. And sometimes people have returned home, but later realize that the return is too difficult and they ask to stay with us to try to improve their situation a little more and to be better supported in the transition back to to life as normal as possible. Now about the issues... The list of possible long-lasting consequences is extremely long (laughs) and varied. It will depend on the brain region affected and the severity of the injury. Recovery is always very uncertain. It's very difficult to say who will recover and by how much. And in any case, to keep things simple, (laughs) we can divide the after effects in two categories or three maybe. The list is not exhaustive, as I said. This is just the most common examples. 
And we have first, I guess, the physical outcomes. For example, hemiplegia or hemiparesis. Some people have uh, ataxia, lack of coordination of movement, loss of balances, involuntary movements and so forth. There are sensory issues as well, like hypersensitivity to noise or lights, impaired vision, impaired sensitivity to touch. And also a big chapter is cognitive and executive issues. And the most frequent are like headaches, concentration difficulties, fatigue, memory problems, organizational difficulties, planning or disorientation, hemineglect, apathy and lack of initiative, or on the contrary, excessive and appropriate initiative, impulsiveness, lack of awareness and lack of, well, awareness of their difficulties. And last chapter, psychoaffective disorders, like mostly it's depression and it's related to the losses they're experiencing. Sometimes the sequels can be only physical, sometimes only cognitive and therefore invisible. And sometimes, most of the times, it's a mixture of both. That's a quite a long bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you said, though, like our brains mm-hmm. really, like everything in our body is affected by our brains. So if there's been a brain injury, it can show up in so many places. And mm-hmm. like a friend of mine actually worked at a group home for young men who did have traumatic brain injury. And he found that like one of the things that he struggled with the most was how to help them or just how to manage like their feelings of like anger and frustration and I guess depression as well about being in the situation that they're in when like you say you can't just tell people oh you know do your rehab for another six months and then you'll be fine like some people don't improve from there and then other people do like there'd be so much uncertainty and when you were there as someone's main support I imagine that you would have to really take care of your own self-care a lot so that you can just be present for your clients. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. And so like family members as well, Mm of people who've had these types of injuries, like I guess they would have their own emotions in response, which would also be perhaps something that you need to navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But well, as I said, we... We're collaborating all together. And uh, I guess that's, we're very lucky because we always have psychologists and um, psychiatrists just nearby. And it's very, um, helpful <laughs> for us and for the families and for the, the patients as well. So, um, whenever um, topics like this arise, we can just uh, also work with the psychiatrists. But yes, well, the emotional components is very present when dealing with people with TBI, just like you said, or their relatives. And here too, there's great diversity as well. On the one hand, there are those, because of their anosognosia, how do you say that in English? I don't know. When you're not aware of your, your, your difficulties. Okay. That's, I think that summed it up really well. <laughs> I'm not sure if we have a, um, yeah. a phrase. Okay. And nosognosia. That's how I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they're not aware of their difficulty. So they just like, well, I'm fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And on the other hand, sometimes they may feel disoriented, strange without really knowing why. Or rather on the depressive side, when they are going through a period that can be described like mourning, we then try to accompany the losses and to help them forge a new identity. There are also some people, as you mentioned in your example, that are angry and frustrated. These people can be very vehement at times and we'll try to find a way to channel this energy and 
into something creative and positive, which is not always easy as well. But as I said, we're a team <laughs> and we rely on each other. But there are so many profiles of relatives, friends and families. For example, there are the overprotectors who wants to shock us past, will want to take on everything and do everything for the person that is affected. And they will quickly become exhausted. Others will experience moments of great sadness and despondency. And sometimes the states are just mixed. And it's also important to know that TBI often leads to a great change in the affected person in the identity and behavior. And many friends or relatives say they no longer recognize the loved one. They say, for example, well, he's no longer my husband. He gets angry all the time. He's always tired and does nothing. I don't recognize him anymore. Well, here again, families and relatives have to face up to the morning and come to terms with the new version of the person. That's not always easy. And it's a challenge to accompany all these people over time to avoid exhaustion of both parties and the erosion of ties because, yes, very often families and friends end up drifting apart, which is very sad. But to finish with a positive note, <laughs> amongst all this, I have also known people with incredible resilience who claim to have become a much better person thanks to the TBI. That does also exist. And so I guess we should get into the like how aerial yoga fits into all of this. I believe that you told me that like there's a room, a therapy room at the rehab center where you work that they actually installed the aerial yoga ha hammocks. So was mm -hmm. that just something nice that they did for the staff, like for your own self-care? Or is that actually quite a common thing in Switzerland? It's not a very common thing. Actually, I don't know of any other place that has therapy room with uh, hammocks. I don't know. Uh, if listeners know of other places like mine, I'd love to know about them. <laughs> but as far as I know, we're the only ones. Oh, wow. The only thing I can mention is that I know one or two independent physiotherapists who have one hammock in the therapy room and use it sporadically for physical rehab, but not, not, not as many as we have, not like for six, seven people at the same time. And so was it your initiative that got them at your centre? Yes. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I was just so convinced that it can be such a useful tool for for the whole team, I guess, because physiotherapists can do th uh, things with it. Our psychomotor therapists can do with it. The um, sports coach or whatever can use them and we can use them. So um, I tried to find arguments that <laughs> can fit with it and, and it worked. Yeah, I really thank my boss or the director for his open-mindedness because it was new. Nobody knew about this. And I actually wanted to ask you as well, because I know that some occupational therapists do use them in their practice, like as a tool to help work with sensory processing and I believe that, or sensory integration, and I believe that's based on the work of Dr. Jean Ayres. Mm -hmm. And I actually have tried to research this myself, like who started using an aerial hammock and how did they put her theory into action? Is this something she did? Could you give us some insights into like sensory swings mm. and sensory integration and how it all fits in together? I'm not sure I'm very well placed to talk about sensory integration and the work of Mrs. Ayres because it's a method that, at least in Switzerland, is more used in pediatrics and it's a field which I have practically no experience in. So, well, as far as I know, sensory swings are used so that the child can manage the amount of stimulation he or she needs. 
or so that he or she can learn to doze and organize himself as well physically as psychologically. But I definitely would have to look into this aspect much further. I guess in sensory integration, they first use swings, hammocks, maybe came later. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've really, like, good luck with your looking because I've really tried to research this mm-hmm. one. And I've, like, I feel like there's a missing link in here. Like, who was the first person who started doing these movements in the hammock for these reasons? I have, actually, I have a, I have a OT friend coming visiting this afternoon. I can ask her because she's working with, with kids. <laughs> so oh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask. Mm-hmm. And so, would you like to share, like, what do you think are some of the, specific benefits to sharing aerial yoga with people who've had a brain injury versus Hmm. like a more traditional mat-based yoga practice or physiotherapy? There certainly are specific benefits to it compared to mat yoga-based practice. Well, at first sight, it might seem more difficult or more dangerous because the hammock seems so unstable and all the complicated tricks you can see on the internet and social networks. But... If you take a slightly different look at the hammock, it becomes a very interesting tool. Although it's a fluid texture, I think the fabric helps with stabilizing. You can hold on it. It won't let you down. You won't fall. Um, That is, once you trust it, (laughs) which is maybe the first step one has to do. This with or without TBI, this works for everyone. (laughs) And also the pressure of the fabric. It's like an enveloping contact and it allows for sensory information. And it can can also help to refill one's own body, like proprioception, also self-limitation and redefine body envelope. I think so, at least. And suspension allows movement that are impossible on land. And you can sometimes compare it to what uh, you could feel in the water of a swimming pool, which is also very helpful. And well, the hammock is such a versatile tool. You can have a very physical approach to it, like maybe a physiotherapist would, for everything that concerns movement, balance, strength, range of motion, so on. And on the other hand, it's also very interesting for the more psychoaffective side to create or become aware of the link between body and mind, how we feel about ourselves. And this, I think, thanks to a mindful practice of asanas, but also thanks to the sensation of the silky, soft fabric. And it's like a cocoon a place to rest and feel held. And well, just a quick anecdote, if I may. I remember a participant who was a logoraic. The only moment he manages to be silent, to keep a few minutes without saying a word, are the moments when he's completely wrapped in the hammock, either in shavasana or in meditation seats. Well, <laughs> but otherwise it just keeps talking, 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 uh-huh. talking. You can't find the button off. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the hammock and it's okay. <laughs> and well, what I also find is interesting is the color of the hammock. In the rehab center I work, each hammock is a different color. And so participants can choose the color that speaks to them at a particular time. And so some may, f- may feel that they need to lie in a forest green hammock because they need to feel like soothed or calmed down. And other may want to use the yellow sunshine because they need that feeling of energy and vitality. So, um, well, you can just link into a symbol that speaks to you. And, and that's also very interesting to work with. And all of this, you can barely feel in traditional mat yoga to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 
So I wonder if you could tell us about your project uh, with Fragile Suisse. Is that how you say it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, Fragile is an association of people who with, with a brain injury and their relatives. And Fragile offers specific support, discussion groups, courses, and various activities adapted to the difficulties of people with a TBI. And it's also active in communication and awareness raising about TBI in general. And it's present throughout Switzerland with offices in each state or cantons, as we call them here. So um, it happens that for the canton of Jura, <laughs> where I work, Fragile has its offices right next to the rehabilitation center where I work. So we are in regular contact. And the idea of offering these courses at Fragile was given to me by my director. <laughs> so I didn't expect him, didn't expect this, and I thank him for his open-mindedness. That was really a good surprise. And we started this project in summer 22, and there have now been three cycles of six lessons, and I hope many more. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was aerial yoga for people who have the traumatic brain injury and... Mm -hmm their families. Was there like a criteria as to who could do this course? Yes. My criteria was that you could walk with or without help and get down to the floor and stand up again without help or with just a little help. So I would say light cases, <laughs> So, if, if I may. Uh -huh. That makes sense because if you have more movement restrictions, probably you would be better doing a one-on-one -on -one session rather than being in a group with five other people. Yeah. And in this case, with the courses with Fragile, we tried to start simple, <laughs> see how things are going, and then maybe why not open it and broaden it, but we're not that far yet. So, and also I'm, I'm alone. I have no assistance. So I have to, um, to do what I can, <laughs> but for them, for them, people with more difficulties or for people who are still in rehabilitation and who need more help. As I said, there's a psychomotorist who is also taking them into the hammock, but then it's another, it's another process because she's not doing yoga. She's more on the cocooning effects of the, of the, the hammock. And maybe that could be something like an in-between option would be you, but more assistance or maybe everyone mm -hmm. having their own carer who could help them. Mm -hmm. And that could also eventually open up the criteria a bit more. And mm -hmm. I guess each time you're doing this training, you're learning more about what works for people and different things that, you know, you learn from different people and how they navigate the movements. Mm -hmm. But that would also, yeah, that means more means. <laughs> and, and well, we'll just, maybe in the future, maybe in the future, I would be open to it anyway, but we'll see how things go. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you consulted with a neurologist as you were developing the program. Are there any mm -hmm. specific contraindications for people who have traumatic brain injury when it comes to aerial yoga? Yes. Well, I sought advice from the consultant neurologist who comes to the center once every three months. And I just wanted to make sure that I was not putting the participant at risk. And he told me that he didn't really see any specific contraindication apart from those acrobatic poses because there's risk of falling down and inversions because of the increased pressure in the head, which can be very dangerous, especially if the person has a shunt. That's something that put in the brain to divert the blood flood. So that was very, that's what the two things I was, 
I had to um, take care about and be conscious of. So no inversions and no fancy tricks. And it's so interesting because often when people see aerial yoga online, that's what they see, the inversions and the fancy tricks. And there's so much more that you can do with the hammock. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to speak to you today, to share all of the other things that it is capable of. I was wondering as well, like, I guess you've done three three terms, so this is probably quite a lot of issues, but beyond the safety concerns about going upside down, were there any kind of specific issues that you noticed coming up with the participants that kind of shaped what you taught? Hmm. Well, yes and no. And I I don't know because maybe I'm a little biased because uh, I've been working with these people for so long. Oh, so you already knew the people well before they came to the class? Some of them, yes, and some of them, no. But I mean, with, with TBI people in general. So maybe I just don't realize what I'm doing and what I, how I'm adjusting, you know? That's what I'm meaning. So I would say no, but when I have to think about it, I say, yes, I do. But <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're such an ideal person to lead a class like this, because it's already second nature for you. You don't have to like think about how to adapt, like you're used to adapting because that's your job. Yeah. Oh, well, I do have to think about it. Sure. But at the same time, if I want to explain what I'm doing, it's not always easy because some things I do without even noticing. Before we go on, I just wanted to remind you that you can use our discount code MACFLOW at markaloo.com to get 10% off. You'll support the podcast and a great sustainable Australian company. The Markaloo is a set of nesting domes on a wooden base that you can use for self-massage, stability and proprioceptive awareness. It's such a great portable and accessible tool that really opens up new movement possibilities. And it's a great addition to chair yoga, adding stability challenges to a floor-based practice or for anyone who loves self-massage. The shape of the Markaloo domes are actually designed to be helpful and comfortable to hold for people working with arthritis or peripheral neuropathy, and their nesting nature allows you to gradually increase load. Check out our link in the show notes for all our Markaloo resources, including some free video classes. I have another way to think about this. Mm -hmm. Like when you were devising the course, did you have a plan of what you wanted to cover each class or did you just arrive planning to go with the flow and just seeing what was working for people? No, I had a plan. I'm, I'm preparing each of my classes uh, in advance. Well, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's a journey <laughs> because uh, at the beginning, I, I didn't really know what people could do when couldn't. So I just like, oh, I'll go with what I think is easy. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll just build up on that. Sometimes what was easy wasn't. Sometimes what I thought would be difficult was easy. And I just readapted from week to week. And also I tried to keep some of the poses I did last week. I tried to do again the week after so that people could get used to them, the poses. And I also decided to do in a series of six classes, three hip height classes and three low hammock classes. And then, well, what was also difficult was that their physical and cognitive abilities of each participant were so diverse. So I, I, I had maybe one person with a hemiplegia and the other was 
only with uh, cognitive difficulties. So um, how do you find balance in a course to suit everybody? But I think we managed to find something. Nice. At least I didn't say it didn't <laughs> work. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was just wondering, did you start with any specific goals for the program? No, not really. Apart from the fact that I wanted them to feel better at the end than when they came at the beginning. Not really. It's, it, it was mainly an exploration for them as well as for me. Or maybe if I really wanted to have a goal, it would be that they can reconnect with sensations and experience their bodies differently. Maybe discover or rediscover movements or poses or postures long forgotten. Maybe that, that's what, what I was trying to to find for them or to give them yeah and and uh what positive outcomes did you notice along the way hmm. outcomes take a moment <laughs> to arrive i mean progress is very slow with this population so uh, it takes a very long time before you can see actually see something or feel something but i would say i started seeing something at well in this last series of courses because i decided to to reteach the first cycle, so the six first classes I did, and to see whether it was it was still as difficult or it, if it was easier. And I definitely say it's it's not huge, but you can see small small changes and uh, how things get more fluid. And uh, I can I could feel that people felt more at ease with the hammock, but it's very subtle. And did you notice? a shift in people's mood from when they started the class to when you get to the end and everyone has their relaxation and meditation time. Yeah, they definitely don't have the same face. <laughs> <laughs> they look very different. Mm -hmm. And were there any surprises that came up for you as you've been doing this? Uh, surprises? Yeah, I think what, what surprised me was maybe just what, what I thought would be easy sometimes wasn't. And so I was surprised at the, the variety and where they challenged me, actually, where the people challenged me. You can do all the thinking you want in advance <laughs> and all the planning you want. Things sometimes just happen and it's something else. And I think that is true of every aerial yoga class. Mm -hmm. And something I yeah. notice as well, often it's the moving in between the postures that people find more challenging than the actual moves. Like just getting used to even something like yeah. rolling over in the hammock can be pretty challenging to navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once you're in the posture, it's okay. But getting into it and getting out <laughs> is, is, I think, the most difficult. Mm -hmm. And so you might have covered this already, but did you learn any lessons along the way from some of the challenges that you might have had? Hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of challenges and lessons that I could learn on the way. Well, my first concern was, will I be able to assist people enough to get in and out of the poses if they need to? I had to become creative. <laughs> I had to develop alternative ways of getting in and out of the posture especially when working with an open hammock. And well, the fluidity of the fabric is particularly difficult to manage for all sorts of reasons, for fine motor skills, body and spatial awareness, general mobility and so forth. And well, sometimes when I was confronted with a slightly more complicated situation for the first time, 
I didn't have any answer right away. So I would reassure the person and try to think of a solution for the next week. <laughs> Another challenge was to adapt the instruction so that they were understood. Simple, very little information at the same time and try to be, to picture them in a very relevant way, as concrete as possible. For example, if you say, try grab the chair is more meaningful than move your hands to the right. <laughs> or activate your abs is meaningless. But if you say you try to bring your belly buttons towards your spine or whatever, it works better. And a lesson that I finally learned is less is more. <laughs> I really had to make a big effort to reduce the amount of poses in a class, to leave enough time for people to settle in and feel. And I guess in the case of the course for Fragile, even more than for a normal course, I have to go back to the basics to do simple things and take time to feel and the richness of these exercises again. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a little quick in my head and in my body and I'm so passionate, I want to do everything. <laughs> so I really have to make a conscious effort to slow down and, yeah, and take time and feel again. So... They brought me back to the basics. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank them. <laughs> I can definitely identify with just being excited and wanting to do everything. And I'm not sure if you have this as well, but sometimes I don't want people to get bored in my class. Mm -hmm. And so I try to pack too many things in because I just want to share so much. And I think that's like it's a lesson I'm working on for myself because sometimes in aerial yoga, like the magic really happens when you do have that time to really settle in. And especially if it's been a lot of energy getting into that position, you want to make it worthwhile for people. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Sometimes, well, you fear that you're boring the people, but it's actually not the case. And yeah, it's, it's an effort also to for me as a teacher to just, be okay with that and say, no, no, it's, it's fine. We'll, we'll just keep on the program and, and, and do no fancy tricks. It's okay. It, there's so much to feel and to, yeah. And so you probably had this as well because you have six people in your group and sometimes mm -hmm. one person might need quite a lot of assistance. So there's five people who are like, it's not like they're waiting because they mm -hmm. are having their own experience, but I could imagine that would also shape your timing because you are moving at the pace of mm -hmm. the slowest person or the person who needs the most help or the last person that you can get to to assist. So sometimes I find that that can take up quite a lot of time in class as well. Mm -hmm. And to not feel, like I'm talking about myself now, <laughs> to not feel like I'm behind because I didn't get through the things that I had planned, but just to kind of go at that rhythm of what's actually working for the people in the class. Mm -hmm. This series of courses for Fragile, they're specifically designed for people with uh, disabilities. So um, when people sign up for the course, they are aware of this. So I guess there's a lot of tolerance and acceptance for the rhythm of each and everyone. So... They agree to slow down. <laughs> they know that things can get complicated and they know that they'll have to wait. So I guess that makes things easier for me and for them maybe as well. And otherwise, it's just a good lesson for me to, to just say, no, it's fine. Don't hurry. It's okay. <laughs> things are like that today. And yeah. 
Did you find there was a lot of group energy and community spirit within the group? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're very encouraging also each other and and saying, oh, wow, uh, this time you got it. And helping and and with really, really community spirit, I'd say. And I know that you teach aerial yoga classes just for a general group in the community Mm -hmm. as well. Did you notice differences between your teaching for this specialized population versus a general class where everyone could show up and maybe you don't know the person before they arrive? Mm -hmm. Yes and no, (laughs) because I guess what I find with the people who have a TBI is can be sometimes almost the same as in a normal setting, but it's like exacerbated. It's like times 10 times more. <laughs> you also have people with dizziness in normal settings. You also have people who, who maybe have limited range of motion or whatever. But I, I think with, with TBI people, it's just 10 times more sometimes. And uh, what was your question again? <laughs> well, I guess I was just wondering about your own experience, like, because you've sp- taught general community classes and then this really specialized class. Mm -hmm. And just from what you said, it sounds like you already teach in quite an adaptable way, but just with this group, everything was the volume turned up. And so I think it's my occupational therapist side. I always want to find strategies and and means of adapting things. So (laughs) that's already embedded somewhere in my brain. So I can't just separate from that. Maybe that's why. Oh, I think that's a great quality as an aerial yoga teacher. <laughs> I think that's even one of the most important qualities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that also means all, always having like two or three different solutions for one asana. If like, oh, if this one has a hip problems, oh, I'll have to have this ready. And <laughs> and if the other one has a knee problem, oh, okay, I have to add that this way. So I always have to have like two or three different solutions ready. Or try to. It's not always possible. But mm-hmm. and you mentioned that, that there are people who have dizziness even in normal settings, and I can only imagine that would possibly be worse in the hammock for some people. So was was this an issue uh, that came up for you a lot? That what sort of strategies did you have t- for working with that? Mm-hmm. With motion sickness. Mm especially. Mm. Actually, I have not been very often confronted to this kind of problem. Uh, it's pretty rare as far as my experience go. Most of the time, everything goes well. Maybe also because I don't include any or hardly any poses without any contact to the floor when I'm working with people with TBI. Maybe that's also helping. But when it did happen with these people, the motion sickness and proprioception challenges were not related. Also, it's not because they have proprioception proprioception challenges that they are have motion sickness it's very different two separate things i'm not saying that it can't happen but for the participants i've been working with the ones who occasionally had dizziness didn't have any of those proprioception problems well in the rare cases when it happens i try to find solutions like proposing different things just just like i said poses with uh, floor contacts poses or prioritize sessions with a hammock set closer to the ground, like low hammock classes also, so that you can have the floor just nearby. And also maybe not use an open hammock where the person is, so that the person can always have visual contact to the walls or the floors. That is also very helpful. But really, as I said, it's 
I've really seldom had to adapt things in this way for now, maybe later, <laughs> but, <laughs> but now it's been, it's been quite good. I think what you're saying about having the contact with the floor at all times is super helpful because that's something that I sometimes recommend to people. Like I find that the more mm -hmm. like fluid, floaty movements where someone's whole body is kind of flowing in the fabric are often the ones where if someone does have like a, you know, get motion sickness, like that will be mm -hmm. the time that it happens or, you know, coming in and out of the inversions as well. And you were also skipping those moves. <laughs> we, to share a, an anecdote from our studio, we've also had some people come in on a Saturday morning with a bit of a hangover and <laughs> that has been a problem <laughs> in class. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> And so another common issue that beginners have is the feeling of the fabric pinching or digging in being uncomfortable. And you did mention that a lot of the people who you work with have heightened sensitivity and like maybe even would be healing after some injuries as well if they'd been in a car accident or something. So I was wondering how you worked with that. Like what strategies did you use if someone was finding the fabric uncomfortable on their bodies? Hmm. I have had very little experiences of this problem with people who have a TBI. Students in regular classes seem to be much softer and complaining than the people with a TBI. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> That's the least of their um, pain challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, in the few painful situations that have arisen, I have used cushions and blankets to relieve the pressure. And most of the time that was enough. Once or twice, I was unable to relieve the discomfort and I had to ask the person to get out of the pose. That's maybe the easiest thing to do. Sometimes they get used to it after two or three sessions. Sometimes things better up when as time passes. But much more often than for pain, I had to use cushions or blocks to make up for a lack of mobility, to provide support and to unload certain areas, a bit like what you do in yin in the end. So, yeah. And so this is a surprise question that just came to me. Mm -hmm. Was there a pose that was just the winner? Like, did people have a favourite or did everyone just have their <laughs> own favourites? <laughs> Shavasana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <a> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess all, the, all the, um, the poses that are like, that give that cocooning effect are everyone's favourites. And I imagine a lot of people you work with, most of the physical activity that they're doing is in a rehabilitation context mm -hmm. or in a daily life context. And as people are working on their recovery, there's probably not as much energy for play and fun. Mm -hmm. Was that something that people were able to do in the sessions? Did you get to the point where people were comfortable enough in the hammock that it started to feel like fun and play rather than a challenge? Yes, sometimes, but I had to help them <laughs> because, well, at least at the beginning, they didn't dare really to express their emotions or maybe they were just too busy getting used to the hammock and, and to where do I have to place it and, oh, that's complicated. But once they get a little comfortable with it and once I, I, I encourage them in this way, they could enjoy that and, and bring back their, um, child spirits <laughs> or wake it up. Mm -hmm. But also maybe it's also cultural because um, 
we're in Switzerland and people don't allow themselves to express your emotions easily. It's, uh, you need to be like correct and not to be too loud, not to disturb. And maybe that's also something that comes into, to the way. So I don't know, but yeah, at first they were really, really serious and I had to push them a little bit. <laughs> Because I think that is one of the things that's so special about being in the hammock. Like often it is this chance where people can connect to their inner child again. Mm -hmm. Once they get used to the fabric, yes. Once they feel confident. Or maybe sometimes sometimes the inner child comes out as well when when there's a like a surprise, when they don't expect that something happens and then they just giggle. <laughs> that, that happens as well sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so did you notice any like emotional or even spiritual benefits that emerged? Did people talk to you about this kind of thing after the class? Not really. I had uh, on one or two occasions where the hammock, especially the open hammock poses such as Savasana or like the cocoony stuff. And when it allowed a participant to let go, some emotions were released. There were some tears, which I hope were liberating. But other than that, not really. And I just want to point out that I'm not a psychotherapist, so I can welcome the emotions that come up. I can, but I'm not trained to heal them. And I just don't want that people mix this. So mm -hmm. I can welcome, I, it's okay when it comes out. And, and if it, if it has to come out, it comes out and it's okay. But it's just not the place that people can work on these emotions afterwards. These are two separate things. And I guess that's why it's so good that you're doing it in the setting that you are, where there is a whole team of people. So, mm -hmm. you know, if someone did have some challenging stuff come up for them or some like trauma that was triggered from being in the hammock or kind of letting go enough that, you know, those deep feelings do bubble up, like there's a whole support team there to help them navigate through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very precious. I'm really, really glad that I have this team all around me and all around the, the participants and the residents and patients and everything. And I know that like personal autonomy is such a big issue when like in the disability field, because a lot of people, especially older generation, often speak in quite a paternalistic way and people have already had this like loss of physical freedom and, you know, like life freedom taken away from them and now need a support team and as people are learning to navigate the world in a new way like to be able to have that personal autonomy and to kind of chart their own course but also balancing that with the additional support needs I could kind of imagine that it would be a bit of a balancing act because they're the experience the expert on their own personal experience, but also there's a team there to help. So collaboration and creativity can be really powerful tools, especially if someone, like something isn't working for someone. How do you navigate this balance of personal autonomy while still kind of maintaining enough of a support structure that everyone could follow along with the class? I'm sorry if that was a really confusing question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to answer anyway. I, there's a lot of different things in your question. Just in the case of persons with a TBI, you have two kind of persons. You have the persons that have a lack of initiative, so they're not very in demand of doing things. 
So they're just most of the time waiting for things to happen. And you have, on the other hand, the persons that want to go forward and want to do things on their own and who can be very affected by that paternalistic aspect you mentioned just before. So for some of them, autonomy is very important. But in aerial yoga classes, as the activity is still new to them, they easily accept to be guided and helped. Maybe things will change in a year or so. I don't know. But, but for the moment, they're just glad I'm here. <laughs> so I haven't really had any of the difficulties you mentioned in the aerial yoga practice. And if there have been frustrations, they have been well hidden. I haven't, well, nobody told me about them. So <laughs> perhaps what was also helpful was to provide, uh, well, to provide a maximum of autonomy and avoid situations of failure is to estimate the capacities and possibilities of the participants during the preparation of the course and to choose adapted poses. So I think a good solution is to is is to plan beforehand. And when there is the temporary failure or when I don't find a solution right now for this posture, I try to find one for the next week. So yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And picking like if you're offering three options, it's like three options that are safe for everyone because I think that's often when it comes up in a group setting where maybe there's a foundation pose and until someone is comfortable with that variation, it's just not safe to move on to a more complex variation or a higher up in the air variation. And that's often when I find myself say, oh, like, let's just stay with the first version for now till Mm -hmm. you know you've got like more familiarity with that before you try this next option, even though I offered all options to the group. So if you've come into it with only offering options that are okay for everyone, that really does allow that autonomy to choose within that range Mm -hmm. while still staying safe for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what advice would you have for yoga teachers, so either floor or aerial-based yoga teachers who are drawn to working with a specialised population, do you think a good first step would be to get further study? Well, although I'm an occupational therapist, I'm only at the beginning of the road as an aerial yoga teacher with a specialised population. So I'm not sure if I can really give advice. But anyway, everything you mentioned is is useful. I mean, a minimum of knowledge of the particularities of the specialized population training that is always good and maybe necessary. Maybe also being more or less directly concerned and having some experiences like, for instance, a family member or a friend that lives with this particularity, or if you work with this popularity or population. Collaboration is also always a good idea. It sometimes helps to find other ways. It's always rewarding as well because you're always learning through the exchange of competencies. But I guess above all, what is needed is a kind of sensitivity to feel what is going on and know how to adjust. You can be very, very well trained in theory with lots of diplomas, but be very inadequate in the field. On the contrary, you may not have been to university, have little training, but have a good sense and sensitivity or intuition and contacts, which means that you understand and you know how to transmit and adjust. So, well, I could also just say maybe it's just good to always stay awake, curious and, and open. And I guess that's key. 
Absolutely. And I wanted to swing back to the kind of work that you're doing with aerial yoga and how different it is to a lot of what we see online and even like say I used to teach aerial yoga at a gym and the gym classes like people had very different goals. So I was just wondering who you look to for inspiration. Hmm. <laughs> it's maybe a bit awkward to say that, but I, I really I I learned a lot from every people I met on my journey, on my path on aerial yoga, really, really. But I have to mention two of my teachers, my teacher from Germany. She was my first teacher training and she has a very special kind of cueing people because <laughs> she had the opportunity to teach blind people and she's very precise in her cueing and she gives them so in order so that you can just do the classes with closed eyes. It's, it's really impressive. So I try <laughs> to <laughs> go this way. I'm not as good as her, far from that, but my intention is to go that way as far as she's concerned. And the other teacher is my teacher from Reunion Islands. I admire the way she introduces progressively and prepares each posture in consciousness, really in mindful and consciousness, and also her capacity to make us feel all the subtle movements inside and all the, not, she's not, uh, it, it's beyond alignment. I don't know how to explain that better, but, but it's really, really, really subtle. And this is also something I'd like to, to, to do as good as she does. Mm. And well, that's for them really classic aerial yoga parts. And when it comes to creativity and acrobatic side, which I also sometimes like to do, <laughs> I have two or three persons on YouTube I like to follow. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Well, we've got one more question and, and it's a surprise question that we ask every yeah. everyone. <laughs> if you could distill everything that you've learned and and that you teach down to one core essence that you think is most important, what do you think that one thing would be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, that really is a surprise question. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's very, very, very difficult. I guess what the hammock brought me is it supported me and it helped me just accept myself like who I am right now and say it's okay in this state just like you are um, today it's okay it's fine and not compare myself or just have the feeling I have uh, such a long way to go uh, until or compare myself to others like you know I think that's what the hammock brought me most right now beautiful I don't know if I no yeah. I think that's you explained it beautifully like self-acceptance just as you are now like what a beautiful thing to share with everyone that gift mm -hmm. excellent well thank you so much yeah thank you so much for everything you've shared thank you for having me a pleasure <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Suriel I know I certainly did you can find me on Instagram at Ryan Loves Yoga and Joe at Garden of Yoga our theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and is used with permission. Check out gosoul.bandcamp.com. We also want to thank our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate you. Patreon is a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 US a month. 
higher tiers get access to extra special content. We're now uploading a monthly video class. We use the funds from your Patreon contributions to pay for editing and producing for our podcast, which used to take me around four hours per episode. So we really appreciate it. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast and join the Patreon club. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. He aroha nui mawa kia koutou katoa. Big, big love.